Hey, welcome to Diamond Talk Podcast. This is uh, episode four. My name is Marcus Ippolito. I'm the owner of In The Zone Baseball and Softball Academy. I'm joined by Coach Taylor Barjaki. He's our general manager here and assistant coach at uh, College of St. Elizabeth, as well as Coach Jeff Falzerano. He's the head varsity coach at Bernard's High School. And uh, Diamond Talk focuses on the world of baseball and softball, uh, mainly as it relates to the players from youth to college, their parents, supporters, as well as all the coaches at the various levels, local leagues, club, high school, and collegiate. Look, we've got a a fantastic show for you guys today. Um, We're going to start off, we're going to be sitting down with Coach Jim McDermott. He's the uh, longtime varsity baseball coach at Mount Olive High School. We've got uh, some uh, practice planning 101. We're going to talk a little sports nutrition with Coach Taylor and Coach Fowles. Uh, Coach Fowles has got a great quick tip for pitchers. And then uh, we're going to be wrapping up with a little bit about one of the greatest baseball movies you've probably never heard of. So uh, we want to welcome Coach Jim McDermott to the show today. We're really happy to have him. Coach McDermott is the uh, varsity baseball coach at Mount Olive High School right here in Mount Olive, New Jersey, which is the, uh, the township that In the Zone is located in. And, uh, you know, I'm going to start off with a pretty easy question here, Coach. How long have you been coaching at the high school? Uh, this is my 17th year, 17th year at Mount Olive. And my ninth year as the varsity coach, I was the freshman coach beforehand, and then I flip-flopped with the old varsity coach. He wanted to do the freshman. And, and how long was he there? Do you remember? Uh, Tim you? was there, I think, close to 20 years when wow. it's all said and done as varsity and freshman coach. Wow. So between the two of you guys, almost 40 years. Yes. Wow, that's incredible. So, you know, it's not easy to, to stay anywhere very long. Um, and especially that long, and especially at the high school sports level. And, uh, you know, with coaching sports, a lot of time the focal point becomes about winning. Um, and every high school program, every sport has tough seasons, right? It cycles. Uh, it depends on what your class looks like, depending on how, what your numbers look like. And those tough seasons sometimes can work against you. So in your time there um, and time to come, how did you handle that adversity? You know, not only with the players and the teams, but, you know, even at a personal level. Well, at a personal level, I always try to be positive. Uh, with the teams, it can become very difficult at times. Well, I guess we've been fortunate because baseball has been really, really good in Mount Olive, and it's been a strong point from the Little League all the way up through. They expect to win. They know how to win. We've had some, some hiccup years, but I guess on the positive side is we've always been that last week of the season. We had a chance mm. to make the state so the kids always have something to play for. And you're also trying to develop young talent. You know, there could be a time we'd look back and say, hey, you know what? It doesn't look really good for us right now down the stretch. We're going to give some younger kids an opportunity, and we'll explain to the boys, hey, we're not putting you by the side, but I want to see Johnny play. Uh, He's going to get a game. You're going to be right back in the lineup again tomorrow. So you try to keep pulling them back in that way. And, And, you know, when you have young kids, you're always looking to the future. Sure. I'm sure, Jim, you've had a lot of highlights and memories from over the years, so it's it's probably hard to pick just one. But if you had to come up with one, you know, number one moment, what, would, what do you think it would be? Probably our first sectional title in 2014. Uh, we beat Mawa at home. And then uh, the next day, the two weeks later, a couple days later, we went and played Cranford, and they were like the five-time defending group two champs. And they had a plethora of stuff. And we went down there on a to Belleville on a Tuesday – 
and we're beating them three nothing and a torrential downpour. Literally, we could not get to the buses. <laughs> the water in the parking lot was up to our knees, and we had to come back the next day and play them again, start from scratch. Oh. Oh, wow. And we ended up beating them uh, one nothing in eleven innings. We stole home in the bottom of the eleventh uh, with two outs and the bases loaded. And then uh, we lost that. Unfortunately, we lost in the Group Three finals to a really good mainland team. Wow, wow. that's a storybook game there, though. Oh yes, it yeah, was. That's yes, pretty it was. cool. It was. So you you must have had some players on that team, and and some before and some after. I know you've helped a lot of guys get to the next level in your program. Can you talk a little bit about that process, and not only talk about the process in general, but how it's changed over the years? Well, I, I came from the college, from the college ranks into the high school, and I tried to prepare the kids who were interested in playing at the next level. I tried to prepare them to get to that level, and this is what's expected of you when you get there. So it wasn't treated like your normal high school program, and the kids knew that. What was expected of them, it was demanding, okay? And I'm the first to tell them sometimes I'm not the easiest you know, if you make a mistake, but a lot of the kids will come back after going to college and playing. They're like, Coach, thank you so much. You prepared me so well. And, you know, college coaches are like, how did you learn to take a lead like that at second? And he goes, because we spent hours doing those type of things yeah. because we, we, we knew the little things are what win the ball game. And we've, we're fortunate to have some really, really good kids. But, you know, as you were saying, the recruiting game has changed dramatically now. You know, it used to be college coaches would come to a high school game and talk to the high school coaches. And right now, not a lot of college coaches talk to us. It's all based on the travel teams that you're playing in and the travel programs that you get hooked up with. And the high school coach is almost like an afterthought. But we have connections with a lot of coaches. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk to our kids and say, hey, do you want to play in college? And this is the level we feel you can play at. You know, and I think the hardest thing right now, and it's not so much the players, but it ties in with the parents, is you are a Division I athlete if you're being recruited by a Division I school. Too many people want to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to play Division I, I want to play Division I. If a Division I coach isn't coming calling on your door, you might want to readjust and look elsewhere. Yeah. And which is nice is there's so many kids now that are in the big leagues that played just junior college that played sure. Division Three, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. and Division Two. So there is a doorway there that they can go through. So you don't have to just shoot. Do you want to be the big fish in yeah. a small pond, or the small fish in the big pond? Yeah. As long as you play. And the other aspect that we try to uh, talk to our players about is, go where you're wanted, not necessarily where you want to go, mm-hmm. because the coach will go there. They'll give you a look. Hey, all right, not a problem. Great, we like you. We like the, what you bring to the table mm. where other kids, they want to go in there. And, you know, you go, you show up the first day and you're, oh, yeah, coach said I was the only second baseman being recruited. You show up, there's 15 kids, <laughs> you know, because they want the money. They, yeah. Hey, you get it? I got 15 kids that applied to school to come play second. I can only keep three, you know. So yeah, it, it works out that way. But the recruiting game has changed dramatically. Yeah. And I think you need to get attached to a good travel program, okay, that has connections at places. And I think the college coaches know where to look. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's changed hugely in our in our time frame. Um, and I was in it when the programs, the club programs, really started, and found that that was pretty tough on high school coaches, trying to figure out ways to uh, to get your kids recruited or get make those contacts when you weren't get those those college coaches calling you anymore, 
or making that, uh, that information sent out there to us. I mean, you still get those blanket emails at times, right, that we respond to and put searches for players and you put them on there. But it gets tough. Um, and the, the club program and the travel program has really changed the, the scope of it significantly, even for the college coaches. Some, some of the D1 guys talk about how tough it is for them to travel to all these places <laughs> over the course of the summer to see all these kids and, mm-hmm. and to make sure they get mm-hmm. the best kids for their program, for their situation. So, uh, you know, and obviously there's, there's video analysis, right? There's, there's online profiles and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, companies doing all this stuff to, to try to push it. So it, it, it almost immerses it too much to some extent. Um, finding the right club is, is huge. Finding the right showcases to go to is huge. Uh, initially, I think it's to, to measure yourself up with a kid at your position and then to find places where, um, you know, schools, to really look at the schools that you want to go to that you really fit for and go to those particular showcases and uh, that they have, that's the best way to be seen. Yeah. I also believe that, you know, piggyback on what you're saying, Coach, is that the schools now, if they are interested in you and you're interested in a school, you need to go to their camp right. mm-hmm. or their clinic so they can work you out and look at you on a more one-to-one basis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the one of the areas that has really taken off. Like a good friend of mine, Dean Eadholt, coaches down at Monmouth, and we had this conversation seven, eight years ago. And he's like, Coach, I'm at the airport right now. I've got to fly to Georgia <laughs> to recruit yeah. 10 kids that are within an hour of the Monmouth campus. Right, but they don't play any games around here. Yeah, you know they're playing all over the country, and these parents are just opening up their wallets to yeah. f- spending tens and of, of thousands of dollars to, to parade their kid all over. Mm-hmm. If you're good enough, they will find you. There was a boy, uh, Chris Roach, out of Hackettstown, maybe ten years ago, was homeschooled. Yeah. The first time he appeared at Hackettstown High School was January of his senior year, and he already had a full ride to Seton Hall. Right. A lefty pitcher throwing low 80s. He was legit. Mm-hmm. Legit. They will find you. Find yeah. you. I think, you know, look, we're biased here, obviously, as a baseball academy, but it would be nice if there was a bit of a return to trusting the high school coaches more and not being so reliant on feeling like you have to go out to the field to find kids that there's enough very good – uh, very tenured gentlemen like yourself here that know a lot about the players that some of these college coaches could save themselves time, money to fly down to Georgia, and shorten <laughs> that cycle of recruiting for sure. So, you know, one of the reasons we started the show was because we are, we're all, and everybody at this table is pretty passionate about baseball and softball and nurturing its growth. You know, it's incredibly important that we see Uh, These sports stay the American pastime, and, uh, you know, we've seen numbers go down, local youth programs around the country, and it's mainly been due to other sports, which is not the worst thing in the world. We're losing kids because they're going about to be athletes in another sport. That's perfectly okay. Uh, But there's been declines for other reasons, too. Although in the last couple years, I think we've seen some stabilization out there. I I don't know that it's a continuing decline that's not stoppable. Um, but that being said, Coach, what do you think that the, the coaches, the parents, the players out there at the youth level specifically could be or should be doing to grow involvement, keep the interest, and keep it where it needs to be from an engagement standpoint to see it flourish and grow over the coming years? I believe that at the rec level, they need to make sure that it's, the game is still fun. You know, I, you know that in every town that there is a little league coach or two 
that can quote you his winning percentage, and he is going to make sure he manipulates things so that they are successful. They can tell you what their what their child is hitting, and they know that they're going to put Johnny Smith in to get his one at bat in the fourth inning and then get him out before the ball finds him. And if you think Johnny is coming back, like I've talked to Little League clinics before, and coaches, I, I try to preach to them as, hey, as a little league coach, if you have twelve kids on your team, your goal is to have those twelve kids play next year. Absolutely, because mm-hmm. all too often they're driving kids away, and I think that's what kind of hurt the game. And plus, people don't want the pressure that's in baseball, even at a young age. Yeah. I don't want to be the kid pitching with the bases loaded. I don't want to be up. I don't want the ball hit to me. Okay, and it's real easy to make an excuse that somebody else made a mistake. And I think a lot of that piggybacks to the parents a little bit. And what's going on in society? It's it's not my fault. I don't want that pressure. And I think that if we kind of get back to the fun side of it, that we should have a, a little bit more of a tick up. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the travel side of baseball is, yes, you can put a little bit more emphasis on winning then, but it can't be winning at all costs. Right. Right? And you need to have these kids, give them a chance to develop because, at, you know, we're, we've all done this for a long enough time. You have the early peaker the kid in fifth and sixth grade who has hair on his arms already and he is the fastest, throws the hardest, hits the farthest. But when a time when he becomes a sophomore in high school, he's not Whole playing anymore. It's, yeah. Or mm-hmm. the kid who can barely walk and talk and chew gum hit his growth spurt and now it's like, holy cow, that kid's really good. What happened? Well, he matured. The other kid was mature earlier. Yeah. And I think that that also ties into some of the, the drawbacks. And there's so much going on. These kids can do so many other things now yeah. to sit there and, oh, baseball's boring. Yeah. Yeah, it's, ba- it's boring if you want it to be. Right. Yeah, and I think who you're surrounding yourself with and who you're letting guide these kids is really what's going to be the big difference maker in terms of the boring aspect, the fun aspect, the engagement aspect how competitive it is, if it needs to be that competitive, and what you're going to do next in terms of retaining those players year over year. So really great points. And Coach McDermott, we want to thank you so much for coming in and sitting with us today. Uh, you know, there's a reason that you've been at your high school for such a long time, for sure. And they're lucky to have you there. So we wish you really a lot of luck this season. 2020 is upon us. And uh, we're certainly hoping to see you back in 2021 and beyond. Thank you very much. As simple as it may seem, planning effective practices is not always that easy. You know, coaches want to get uh, as much time as they can um, as possible, and they're looking to get creative with the time, and they want to keep the kids engaged. So, um, Coach Taylor, let's start with you on this. Talk a little bit about batting practice for a a younger team. Let's say a 13U team. You've got an hour and a half, maybe two or three batting cages, a little extra space behind them, two coaches. What's your plan look like? So, I mean, I try to make sure I touch on a little bit of everything. Mechanical, situational, base running, uh, in that in some areas, and, and definitely bunting. Uh, so with the two coaches, I try my best to strategically place them so that all the players are supervised, both for for safety and to make sure they're doing the right drills. So lay it out for you. Cage one would most likely be uh, with a coach working on some sort of situational drill, normally like a two strike approach or an off speed type drill. We do like the bounce drill here a lot, or just like slower front toss. Cage two is usually some sort of T work. We're all we're all spread out multiple T's throughout the cage, and I use the lane uh, as an unsupervised lane. In reality, I have a coach on one side, and I'm on the other side monitoring the players. So uh, there we'll do things like high low T, uh, one handed drills, you know, walk through stuff like that, etc. 
Uh, and then in cage three, uh, that's where I usually hit my situational or my hitting mechanics type stuff, something where I can really break down the hitters and get a little bit more in-depth as to their mindset or get into their mechanics. Uh, depending on the practice as we get closer to the season, that's when I'll really go into more situational work. But for the first couple practices, I'm still learning the players, still learning their mechanics, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, And with that free space that you were mentioning, uh, I use that for some sort of strength conditioning, like medicine balls or core work or, or whatever uh, I want to focus on that day. And like I said, I can use that also for base running where I can, uh, where I can, watch, the, I can watch the hitters using me for their situation, my, my cage as their situational hitting round. So, you know, if I'm doing a hit and run, guy will steal and the hitter has to swing and, you know, sure. and so on. So let's flip it a bit. You know, what if they're eight, nine years old? Focus and attention is changing a lot here. Mm -hmm. Same plan? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I always tell my players that I'm treating them like I would treat the older kids. Same drills, same layout. You know, if I need to be a little bit more attentive, though, with those younger guys, uh, making sure that they're doing – they're not goofing around, they're not throwing balls everywhere and stuff like that. Um, but I, I'm always setting expectations at the beginning of practice and, and letting them know what I'm looking for and how I'm treating them and, and how that's going to prepare them. You know, like I tell – I tell my little kids is that I'm not preparing you to be a better hitter tomorrow or a better hitter next week. I'm training you to be a better hitter for your high school coaches, for your middle school coaches. So I want to make sure that, and it kind of ties into what Coach McDermott said, I want to make sure that I'm preparing them. Well, how did you learn how to take such a good lead or a good secondary lead? I want them to have the next level preparation, not just what's going to help me win a baseball game on Sunday. Sure. I mean, look, that makes sense. So, Coach Fowles, I'm sure you have some practices that you use at Bernard's. Maybe you don't necessarily want to share this with your competitors, but uh, <laughs> high school programs are also sharing space a lot of times. There, There's a lot of other groups that might be in that space with you, sharing your gym time, and you might have some small area, one batting cage, two if you're lucky. What does an early season, two-hour indoor plan look like for you? Yeah, we're, we're fortunate. Um, softball being the cages when we're in the gym, and then we usually flip-flop. Lacrosse is always on the turf field, turf field that we don't have. Um, so they have a place to go. I mean, unless it's covered in snow, we're not sharing it with them. So uh, our first hour of gym time, there's a 20-minute dynamic warm-up and base running that follows that. Uh, throwing practice, we call it practice because it's working on technique. Want them to think of it like batting practice. You're not just throwing a warm-up. We then move into uh, specific position drill work. Uh, something we might outline in our practice plan, whether it's uh, catchers doing certain drills, infield, outfield doing their drills. That usually takes about 15 to 20 minutes. And then we'll finish off with some team defensive aspect, whether it's first thirds, bunt defenses. Uh, we might run pick plays off of those bunt defenses or maybe even scale down our cutoffs. Uh, the second hour we move to hitting, we have two cages up in our – it's actually in our wrestling room, and we have two cages up there and a little extra space. And sometimes we use the outdoors – as well, because it goes out into a parking lot, uh, well, not a parking lot, but a driveway um, that we can do a few things, maybe some running or what have you. But we'll set up stations. Uh, we'll have a bunting at a machine. I do force our kids to bunt for like two weeks. I have a bunting station for like two weeks, and then we, we add the bunting in to other aspects of our hitting program. Uh, we'll do some T work, but we try to keep the T work simple because um, we, we find that if we give them too much to do, they do nothing um, that's effective or helpful to them. So we may just do uh, a preset with a no stride drill or a hop back or maybe a happy Gilmore or something something that they're accustomed to and they understand the purpose of. 
Uh, we'll run an angle toss. So we have, actually, I should have said this, we have our cages cut in half. So we have four sets in each cage and then a couple outside. Uh, we'll do an angle toss with some squishy softballs so that if a kid gets hit, it doesn't hurt, but we throw it from behind that kid's. So on his backside, we throw an angle to the outer half to work that kid on hitting middle and away. Uh, and we do that, we actually do that drill every single day. Mm. Um, we will have a soft toss station. I'm not a huge fan of soft toss. I, 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 it can become very ineffective with high school kids. Could be a time for them to screw around. So we, we try to vary it. We may do a drop drill with it. Um, we may do a bounce drill to this off speed. Some things just to, to get them going. We may even skip that sometimes and do mini whiffles for hand-eye. Something to, to, to kind of mix that up because it's a difficult drill. They really get kids to stay focused. Uh, and then we'll do a front toss or an overhand. I prefer overhand. I want kids to see it overhand more often than not. Uh, I want them to develop that data and that data recognition. But we will do some stuff with uh, underhand uh, front toss so they can just get their swing going a little bit. We're always trying to tell them to talk about or think about situations and, 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 and to take pitches. Yeah. Right, pitches that aren't uh, hittable pitches sure. for them. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a fitness area. So uh, we always incorporate some aspect of fitness in our program, and it's usually in our hitting segment. So with that, you know, you have maybe five to, to eight reps every single time. I don't like the reps to be long. I, you never sit in a, you know, how often do you sit in a batter's box and take 12, mm -hmm. 14 swings? Mm -hmm. Sure. And then kids get fatigued. That would be a quality at bat if you did. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it would be very quality at bat. But the issue with that is that uh, when kids are swinging for that long, it's not quality any longer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It becomes quantity over there. So when you, after that. Yeah, so when you think of that, you have like six to seven stations. There's eight to ten minutes per. It moves pretty quickly, efficiently. Hopefully you can keep the numbers small with that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Avoid some of that screwing around. I mean, you're really, you're really maximizing your space and time over there for sure, and, and no doubt that the players are getting a ton out of that. So last question on this. Templates are easy for coaches to work with. What would be a simple template, you think, for an outdoor practice plan that – you know, a coach could use often, maybe just changing some of the things that you're doing, but obviously some basis that you can work from over and over and over again, but easy for coaches to build off of. I'd follow a similar plan. Right? You have your dynamic stretch, your base running to follow, your throwing practice after that, position-specific drill work. Uh, I have the advantage at that point where I can split us up because we have a nice cage outside as well, so we can put kids in the cage while we do maybe some, uh, some middle infield stuff or some full-out infield stuff and then that those groups can flip-flop. But if you don't have that, go right to a team defensive phase and then a hitting circuit. And your hitting circuit could include some aspect of base running, could include some other aspect of uh, fitness. Uh, and we always try to end uh, with a pregame. I try to end with a 10-minute pregame to kind of get us a little fired up, uh, get us moving, try to make it uh, you know a little bit exciting to them. Sure. Yeah, I mean, being here at the facility, I mean, we have the luxury of the indoor space for a set number of times. So when I'm outside with my teams, I'm completely immersed in all defensive work. So in terms of a template, you know, my outdoor practices generally follow the same plan, right? So I go from my dynamic and static stretching. It's a little bit longer when you're outside because if, with, if you're on a field and there's nobody behind you, you can go a little bit later toward the end of the practice, especially how I plan it out. So we'll start with our dynamic and, and static warm-ups, and then we go right into we go right into a dynamic catch 
where we're catching and throwing dynamically and we're doing position-specific throwing and drills, whether you're an infielder or an outfielder. If you have younger groups of kids, you could do both, and they get both you know, they get the same amount of work. From there is when I generally will run right into some sort of um, individuals, we call it. So it's infielders go with one group, outfielders go with the other. And again, if it's, if it's uh, younger kids, you can always split the time in half. So if it's 40 minutes and you got two sets of 20 and then – you know, they, they flip up halfway through the uh, through the practice. From there, I'll take uh, that situational type stuff and I'll put it on the field now and I'll do cut plays. I'll do I'll put runners out there. Like if I'm doing infield work and I'll have the outfielders put on helmets and now they're base running, so they give the infielders just a sense of urgency and get that internal clock going a little bit. Uh, and then right from there, I mean, half the guys already got helmets on. Everybody else grabs a helmet and you finish with some, some base running. You don't need much light to – to run into some base running. So extend that a little bit, make it a little bit more game-like. If you want to throw some claps in there, you want to throw a baseball in there where you can work tag-ups or reads and stuff like that, you could do that as well. So I like to follow that. I feel like that really flows like how we had talked about in previous podcasts where we're constantly working. It's not stretching and throwing and then right to base running. You want to go right into it. That's great information for coaches out there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you you probably need to realize as a coach is that you're not going to do anything if your kids aren't feeling healthy about themselves, right? So they got to have some really good sports nutrition. There's my segue. So let's make some healthy kids here, Taylor. What do you got for us on this? Hydration and substance. You know, making our kids have the tools and the knowledge and what they need to eat and drink. And, you know, Coach Jeff and I went to Cooperstown together this past summer. Let's just say the food there was uh, less than appetizing, although I spent the majority of the time with the team eating. So uh, I think I gained about 10 pounds that week. But... It is what it is, but uh, it's a way for them to regulate meals and taking them to make sure they got that stuff in. So it, with that, it gave me a nice perspective on making sure kids are eating the right things at the right times. And I had one kid show up because he didn't like the food, and he went and got a bowl of rice and came back with a bowl of rice and a slice of bread. And it was just like, what are you, what are you doing? Are you carb loading? And he's just like, he's like, I don't like anything. I'm like, well, uh-uh, here we go. And so Coach Jeff, I mean, and when you're out there with your son, you're going from game to game. You know, what do you do to pre- prepare yourself? But, you know, but him as well. Well, my son Matthew and I have some food sensitivities, so he's forced in some respects to understand the effects that different foods have on his body. And um, as a kid who he needs his carbs and loves his carbs, <laughs> I'm hoping he wasn't the rice kid. No, right? he was not the rice kid. He was not <laughs> but, the rice and bread kid. But he also needs his protein or his energy level and attitude are greatly affected. So um, he's actually come to hate fast food. He realized what it does to his body, and he realizes how much it affects his stomach to the point where he's a salad and chicken kid for lunch. We put chicken in his salads almost every day, and he's fine with that. Hates the school pizza, everything. Wow. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to claim that I'm a good meal packer. I hate packing, I hate packing lunches. I hate eating packed lunches. Yeah. Um, it, in fact, when I was a kid, it made me nauseous, so I have this, this fear of it. But we, we just fill ourselves up with protein-rich snacks and bars. We... Um, he gets by with a protein bar, uh, a sandwich, a salad, a grilled burger from a really good snack shack works mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm okay with the same. So it seems to be a pretty thing for us. You know, you'll rarely see me unpack a yeah, sandwich no, from a cooler. <laughs> we did a lot of work together this summer and this fall. So I was, yeah. I mean, do you feel that by making healthier choices for your kids, it's forced you to make some choices, yourself, some changes yourself or you know, do you seem to be like biting the bullet a little bit and eating the more unhealthy stuff uh, because it's just easier for you to grab whatever you can? 
uh, you know, I know for me and my son's still a baby, but I find myself eating, you know, just whatever I can get to get me through the day just so I can, you know, buy him more stuff, whether it's food or toys or whatever. So, I mean, do you feel like that has an impact on you? Well, I'm fortunate in a lot of ways. Uh, some of it's due to the coaching and advising kids to eat right and hydrate. Mm -hmm. um, but my wife is also an amazing cook there you go. and loves to cook healthy and we eat healthy most of the time. Um, we've come to know our own bodies because of the issues that we have with the sensitivities. She, or like our pantry is packed with protein bars. Our meals often are filled with a mix of protein, carb, and vegetable, fruit. We do, we do laps at times. Mm -hmm. Our schedules are busy. Some pizza sneaks in there, um, which isn't awful, but it's not also not the best. We drink mostly water um, with low water intake. If my wife, my daughter, and myself did not have enough water, we get migraines. Mm -hmm. My daughter's is a stomach-related one, but um, Matthew's kind of caught in that. Mm -hmm. He has to do it as well. Mm -hmm. To his benefit, uh, we avoid sugary drinks, even mm -hmm. sports drinks. We only use them usually in sporting events or when someone is ill yeah. to help them recover. Um, so I think all of those particular things play into it. Yeah. Let, me, let me just be clear about pizza. In my world, it doesn't sneak in. Yeah, it's a very well. It's a very well planned. Just, yep. Oh, yeah. thing. I mean, listen. We all have our we all have our things. Like, um, if anybody who knows me knows, I literally will drink any type of energy drink that's out there. Like even the one dollar Seven Eleven kind. So it's probably gonna, not the best. But you're going to die. But in the next it's, year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my piece of advice for all parents out there and, and coaches as well: just continue to. Talk to your kids and your players about just making healthy choices like waters and Gatorades. You know the and and you got to be careful with the Gatorades now. The Gatorades are very high in sugar now, so making sure that something like G two or something is out there. But yeah, just be a little bit more conscious of what you're drinking. All right, so we're going to move on to uh, our quick tip for today's episode. Uh, this is uh, what we call the pitching flip drill, and this is a drill that um, it it really helps pitching fluidity, uh, working on rhythm. Uh, it aids with arm speed and uh, arm pass. So, Coach Fowles, why don't you get right into us? Take us into the pitching flip drill. Yeah, I realize that in a lot of our segments today, we never talked about how we incorporate pitching into our practice planning, so probably something that we need to consider. Definitely. But here's one drill that uh, we can do. Uh, you can do at home. You can do this without throwing the baseball, but it obviously works better if you're able to throw the baseball of, uh, you know, of roughly 60 feet. doesn't need to be accurately 60 feet 6 inches. But it's done for, to generate arm speed, as you said, develop arm path. When pitchers break their hands, some try to quickly move their arm to above their back shoulder. They, by doing so, they shorten up their arm that way and end up emphasizing the weaker front muscles as opposed to the stronger muscles in the back of the arm, the shoulder, et cetera. This drill is about getting rhythm, getting your arm going, generating arm speed, and getting an efficient arm path. The drill is most effective when having that room to throw, as I said before and a, a target to aim at, even if it's just a net with a strike zone and a bucket for finishing your leg kick. So for the drill, you start in the set position. You lift your leg to balance and remove hand from glove with ball in your hand. While at the balance point, you now flip the ball up into the air. So you're still balanced and the ball has left your hand. You catch it quickly with your palm down and flow smoothly into your land and throw. By doing so, it allows your arm to go into its natural path and get up and uh, up, up and out, or first low and out and up, and then to that position that you need to throw from. Immediately after you catch the ball, though, you need to get your eyes on your target. Emphasis on this is to get hand at the top of the baseball, your thumb goes through your thigh, your head towards your target, you use your balance and backside to create force. If you place a bucket where your front foot would be on lift, as if you'd rest your foot on the top of the bucket edge, on your follow through, you can kick your back leg 
over that, carrying it over the bucket for your follow-through. So this is not specifically for a player pitching at 60 feet? <clears throat> Doesn't have to be. Okay, so, so really any age level can do this, especially since you're not really throwing a ball. We're not talking about taxing your arm, overthrowing, or anything nope. of that nature. It's a very mechanical-oriented drill. Yeah. Much, Yeah, much so. I'm, you could throw the ball, and having a target to throw at helps. You could throw it short distance. You could throw it normal distance. Yeah. Anything that you need uh, to, to work yourself through that. But it's definitely a mechanical piece of where your arm needs to go. Yeah, and so if you had some side work on some of those early indoor practice plans, this could be perfect side work because it, it might even be a little bit autonomous, right? Once you get explain it to the kids, show it to them at the start of the practice, that could be where you cycle your pitchers through. Absolutely, and the yeah. kids that tend to short arm it, you can add it to their pens. Yeah. All right, well, hey, listen, that's a, that's a great drill for our pitchers out there. And, uh, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit more baseball here, but more about a baseball movie. And this is a probably one of the best baseball movies that you've most likely never even heard of. Most people probably don't even know it exists, unfortunately. So hopefully we shed some light onto it, open some eyes and ears to it. I'm not sure if anybody out there has ever heard of The Mavericks, and, uh, but I'm sure a lot of you know who Kurt Russell, the actor, is. Well, his father... Uh, who was also an actor, started a, an independent baseball team uh, out in Portland in the early 70s uh, called the Mavericks. And for a moment in time, in their 15 minutes of fame, they literally put a scare into Major League Baseball. And there's a movie that's done about this. is a documentary. It's called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. And if you love sports stories about underdogs that are not supposed to win, uh, this a thousand percent is a movie that you need to see. It, it, to give you an idea about how good it is, re- it was released in 2014, and this movie still has a hundred percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And if anybody watches Rotten Tomatoes closely when movies are released, no movies have a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, other than maybe Taxi Driver and The Godfather and the like. So, <laughs> The Battered Bastards of Baseball is up there with some of the greatest films uh, that are listed on Rotten Tomatoes now, and for good reason. Uh, most people have never seen it, let alone heard of it. Uh, it is available on Netflix. Uh, you'll find the trailer and a couple other things on YouTube if you search for Battered Bastards of Baseball or if you put in Portland Mavericks Baseball. But uh, I highly recommend this. This is a great rainy day movie. Uh, if you can catch it, uh, get your kids to sit down and watch it with you. It's a lot of fun for kids. Uh, it may have some off-color moments to it, uh, and once you see the trailer, you'll understand the nature of the team. It's going to be kind of par for the course and expected, but certainly uh, one of those movies that's worth anybody, any sport actually watching. It's a lot of fun. Hey, so that's going to be a wrap for this week's episode of Diamond Talk on behalf of uh, Coach Falzerano, Coach Taylor. We are real thankful that you tuned in, and uh, don't forget to follow us on social channels. We're at uh, Diamond Talk Show. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and online at diamondtalkshow.com. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Look out for our next episode, and we'll see you on the Diamond.